I was thinking about The Office this week because uh, The Office, the, the plot of The Office, if you will, if you haven't seen it, don't worry about it, um, although you're really missing out. But if you haven't seen it, it's about this little office complex where they sell paper, Dunder Mifflin, okay? And at Dunder Mifflin, all these very different people are shoved together in cubicles in a small office. So a bunch of different people who at no other time outside of the office would these people choose to be together. They're so different, right? But they spend all their day together in this small office. And when you bring a bunch of different people and you put them in a small space, what happens? Conflict, right? And so the show is all about the conflict that arises as uh, Phyllis and Stanley and Jim and Dwight and all these others are crowded into this space together. And it's also about their leader, Michael Scott. And Michael Scott is the worst boss ever, if you've ever watched this show, and also somehow the best boss ever. Like somehow he's, he's both of those things wrapped into one. He always misses it. Like he's always getting it wrong. It ends up okay. But like situations that are serious, he laughs at, you know, and situations that are laughable, he takes really serious. And so that's kind of the, the whole plot line of the, of the show. Okay, so you bring a bunch of different people together. You put them in a small room. Conflict happens. And then how are, is that group of people led through the conflict? That's the whole premise. And it makes for a great show. It's also an insight into church, isn't it? Which is the other place in your life besides work where you're brought together with a bunch of people who are very different, different than you, different than each other. And it's possible in a group like that where all those people are put in a small room <laughs> together that conflict might happen. And I praise God we don't have a lot of conflict at Highland, but it's possible because you've brought different people together and put them into one space, the conflict would arise. And so the, the text today is really about how, how does a church lead through conflict when it's inevitable like that? And what's at stake based on how they're led through that conflict and how they join in helping to overcome it? So let me, let me think with you about three questions. This is what we're going to answer today. What am I praying for? What am I praying for when it comes to my church family, my church family's leaders? What am I praying for? First question. Secondly, how am I helping? How am I helping? And third question, what are we hoping? What am I praying for? How am I helping? And what are we together hoping? Okay, so come with me to Acts chapter 6. Let me set this up here. What's true of any group, you bring a bunch of people who are different together, they're going to have conflict, proves to be true of the church. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so you're bringing more different people together, the Hellenistic Jews, I'll explain that, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right. Before we go on, let me make sense of what's going on here. In ancient Israel, the Jews had a practice that when a woman's husband died, she became a widow, of course. In that world, there wasn't insurance. There wasn't uh, life insurance, retirement policies, 401ks. Okay, all that wasn't set up to take care of a family member if you were to depart. So a widow would be in bad shape. She was in trouble. And so they have this practice that every day, somebody in that Jewish community would go. They would collect supplies, food, money, whatever the widows needed, and they would go widow to widow and deliver those things, okay? So one of the beautiful things about the early church is that they pick up that really important practice and they carry it on. 
And so somebody in the early church is going around making sure all the apostles are taken care of. But here's the problem. We have two different groups that have come together in this church. You've got Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. <clears throat> Let me make sense of that. If you read your Old Testament, you'll know that Jews, they didn't just stay in Jerusalem and Judea, that they scattered all over the ancient world. And so when you scatter, let's say you move to a different country, you have your kids there, they raise their kids there and their kids there. So generations outside of kind of the homeland, that over time you pick up the culture, the customs, the language of those places where you have moved to. We see this happen today. And so over time you have Greek-ish Jews who are probably speaking Greek, probably look different to a degree, and Jewish Jews who have stayed around in Jerusalem and Judea. And in the early church, those two groups are coming together. So you have language differences, culture differences, and they're all trying to gather in the same room and worship together, okay? And so what happens when you bring different people together, combine them into one, conflict happens. And in this case, it's a cultural conflict, a cultural oversight. The Greek-ish Jews feel like their widows are getting overlooked. They're not getting taken care of like the Jewish Jews. And it's really clear from the apostles' response, this is an oversight. They didn't mean to do this. And yet the Greek Jews feel this as an offense. It hurts. It feels oppressive. Pay attention to that. What's an oversight feels oppressive. It hurts. And so they've got to take care of it, right? So here's, here, let me set the stage here. And we're going to jump back into the passage. You have a bunch of different people who've been brought together. Conflict happens. And the question is, how are the leaders, in this case, the apostles, going to respond? Um, maybe you haven't seen The Office. Have you ever seen the movie Remember the Titans? Has anybody ever seen this? Okay. When I was in high school, every time we had a substitute, we watched Remember the Titans. Okay, I can pretty much quote that whole movie. It's awesome. All right. Let me set the stage for Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, Denzel Washington is a football coach and he's coaching a team in the era of integration. So black students and white students are being brought together in the same schools. Absolutely, this was critical, needed to happen. But they're trying to play together on the same football team, these white athletes and black athletes, and it's not working well. They're fighting about every single thing. I mean, they're at each other's throats constantly. You bring different people together, put them together, you have conflict. It's happening on the team. So they're on this overnight football retreat. They've gone to just practice and practice. They're fighting all day. And so Denzel wakes up the boys at 3, 3 a.m. You remember this? Wakes them up in the middle of the night. It's dark outside. And he says, boys, we're going to go on a little run. And everybody's, you know, they got sleep in their eyes and they're tired and they can't believe this. And he just starts running into the woods. And so they take off after Denzel. They're running through the woods, they're running through rivers and stuff. And finally, as the sun rises, they come into this field and there's this mist of morning on the field. The light is behind Denzel and he looks at the boys and the music starts to crescendo and he tells them, this is Gettysburg. They run to the field of Gettysburg, which was a, a historic location in the, Civil, in the Civil War where the North and South fought each other. He begins to explain that the men who fought and died on this field were fighting about the same thing that we're fighting about today. He says, and this is what he says, the music's just rising, the mist is behind him, and he says this, he says, if we don't come together right now on this hollowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other, and maybe, I don't know, just maybe, we'll learn to play this game like men. And the lesson there is, 
all cultural conflicts can be solved by a great speech, right? And like preachers watching that are like, amen. You know, like let's just, let's just preach them to death, right? And it's gonna solve everything, okay? And as great as that movie is, it's an awesome movie. It, okay, it's not quite true, right? After that in the movie, they never have another problem. They win the title and stuff. But we know it doesn't play out like that. In fact, it, it takes some really hard work from the leaders to resolve the conflict. So let's look back here and see what happens. Look at this. Start in verse two. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, which is study of God's word and then preaching of the word to non-believers in this case. It wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known, this is important, to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. It's worth pointing out he was actually the first Greek Christian, because he had converted to Judaism first. Just worth paying attention to. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Okay, if this is a window into good Christian leadership, and based on the next verse, which I'll read in a moment, I think it is, pay attention to what good Christian leadership looks, looks like. And remember, the first question we're answering is, what, is, what am I praying for when it comes to my church family and its leaders? Well, let me, let me show you what good Christian leadership looks like. It's worth pointing this out. First of all, the leaders of the church are devoted fully to the Lord. So they're spending their time doing what? Do you remember? Ministry of the word and prayer. Like they are fully committed. So let's throw this up on the, on the screen. You're going to see this cycle play out. They're spending their time in devotion. It is critical that they are tethered to the Lord. That's what they're committed to. But when a problem arises, they don't get defensive. They don't ignore it. They don't defend themselves and say, oh, we didn't mean to do that. Don't worry about it. Or they don't diminish it, say it's not a big deal. What they do is they discern it. So a problem comes up, it's brought to them, and they listen. They hear them out, and they discern that something needs to, be ha needs to happen to take care of this. This is a serious thing here. And then they move from devotion to discernment to designation. Okay, the way that we're going to solve this issue is we're going to identify the right people. We're going to expect that the community can identify the right people who are what? Full of the spirit and wisdom. So it's not just anybody, not just any random person that can handle these issues. We need people who are filled with the right stuff. So we're going to designate those people, and then we're going to turn over the responsibility to them. We're going to delegate. We're going to turn this responsibility over to them so that we can return to devotion, to the ministry of the word and prayer. You see that play out there? Okay. This is good Christian leadership. So let me leave that on the screen for just a second. Think with me through this. So the apostles recognize that the church is something, it's like a three-legged stool. So there is our connection to God through prayer. There is our connection to the world through the ministry of the word. Remember the, the job and acts is to witness to all the world of the name of Jesus. So there's the ministry of the word of preaching it. So connection to God, connection to the world, but there's this third leg of the stool, and that is our connection to one another. 
And they recognize when somebody comes and they're like, hey, the third leg of the stool is broken. They recognize that if that doesn't get fixed, then they're going to fall over. Like all of those legs of the stool are important. They're all part of our job and they're all connected to our mission of the church. And so if that leg, our connection to one another, isn't functioning right, then we've got to fix it. But notice, look at this. The apostles don't fix it themselves, do they? What do they do? They discern, yeah, you're absolutely right. This needs to happen. So let's pick the right people, put them in place and trust that with the right people in place, this problem is going to resolve itself. And then we'll get back to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. Isn't that interesting? And you may also have noticed, last thing I'll point out about this, that who are the people they pick? They pick seven from among the people who raised the complaint in the first place. Seven of the people who raised the complaint, who were filled with the right stuff, they choose those people to address the complaint. And notably, all the names given are Greek names. It's a problem of Greek Jews getting overlooked. They pick Greek guys to fix it. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So um, let, me, let me break this down for you. Okay, as you look at this. Part of us uh, looks at this and we're like, those lazy apostles, they just want to sit in their room and pray all day. We got widows out here need taken care of and they're, not, they're, 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 they're too high and mighty to go take care of the widows. It's kind of what it sounds like, right? How many of you have had this experience though where you came to the church and you're like, um, hey, Eric, uh, Highland, I have this great idea. Highland needs to do this. Or, or the negative version of that. Eric, why isn't Highland doing this? Okay. And myself or one of our shepherds, you come to us with a complaint like that. It's a legitimate complaint. It's a good complaint. It needs to be raised. You come to us and you're like, hey, why aren't we doing that? And I say to you, you are absolutely right. You are the perfect person to take care of that. I'm going to go pray. <laughs> Would you be happy with me? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. You would feel like I was somehow shirking my responsibility or the leaders of the church were somehow shirking their responsibility if they weren't taking care of themselves, some need that arose in our midst. And yet what happens when Christian leaders work this process, raising up new leaders, is that it equips those people to do even greater things for the kingdom. What we see about Stephen, one of the seven guys chosen, is he goes on to be the first Christian martyr. In the long history of those who've given their life for the Lord, what was the first thing he did? He took care of widows. Before he ever preached to the masses or died for his faith, he took care of widows. Or Philip in Acts chapter 8, another one of the seven that's chosen. He goes to preach to all Samaria and converts many in the nation of Samaria and then converts the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember this about Philip? So this process, equipping and empowering the body of Christ to actually tend to the needs in its midst is the way the body is built up for the work that we're called to. Think about that. That's how, how it works. Okay. So what am I praying for? What should I be praying? Last thing I'll say about this right here. I should be praying that at Highland, my church family, that our leaders are committed to this. That above all, there are people, they are people who are committed to staying attached to the vine through prayer and the ministry of the word. And I recognize that conflicts are going to come up, but my prayer is that our leaders will be tethered to the Lord so that when something comes up like that, that they're equipped to discern it, 
to designate who should handle it and to delegate those responsibilities so that our church remains united. Like, that should be my prayer. I hope that you're praying for your church and its leaders, and I hope that you're praying that they'll live this out. Now, let me point something out here. Did you notice, and you you got to think about how significant this is and how countercultural this is to the way we often think about how problems should be handled. Somebody comes to them with a complaint, and they don't stop everything they're doing, all get together in a room and come up with a robust seven-step strategy for addressing the plan. You know, we're going to have so-and-so bring canned goods on this day. So-and-so is going to deliver those to the widows on this day. This person's going to pick up all the trash afterwards. You know, you're going to make sure that, you know, the widows are... Okay, they don't come up with a plan. Do you notice that? So they don't come up with a plan or a program. What do they pick? People. You see that? No plan, no program in place, just the right people. We say in our staff meetings often, people, not programs. People, not programs. I went to get my oil change the other day at Take 5 Oil Change. Actually, a guy from Highland opened that Take 5 Oil Change. You go to a place like Take 5 Oil Change because you want your oil change to take five minutes. You want it done fast, right? So you go to a place like that because you want it done fast, and your concern the whole time in the back of your head is that they're going to go too fast. You know what I'm talking about? And they're going to forget to screw on something they're going to leave something open and you're going to drive away and self-combust, you know, like blow up. That's your fear in a place like that, right? You're afraid you're going to get what you pay for. Okay. At the Take 5 oil change, there was a manager who was watching his guys. He's training all these new guys. So here I am sitting in the car and we've got guys under my hood right here, guys under the vehicle, a guy working with me at the side. And the whole time he's watching everything everybody does. And there was a guy who forgot to screw something down on my car. And he says, you didn't screw that in right. And he goes and he fixes it. The guy talking to me at the window, he said, did you ask him this? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, And, and he, he had not asked me that. It was about windshield wipers, which I didn't want. But he goes, no, ask him. Ask him if he wants the windshield wipers. And so he made the guy do you want windshield wipers? Yours look a little bad. You know, like made him make the pitch on me. Okay, the whole time he's watching everybody in the shop, making sure it's all getting taken care of. And I know the owner of that Take 5 oil change is happy, not because he has the right program in place, but he's got the right what? Person. Like with the right person, the right people in place, the problems are going to get resolved. And what we read here is that they appoint the right guys to handle this, and then it's never a problem again in the early church, as far as we know. It was probably a problem somewhere. But the right guys took care of it. Okay. So second thing, what am I praying? I'm praying that our church would be working this process, that its leaders would be tethered to the Lord, ready to discern those needs when they come up so that we might stay united. But two, how am I helping? Let me challenge you here. I want to be, and if you're writing notes out next to the side of Acts 6, I want to be a person filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit so that when my church needs me, I'm ready. And they can call on me. I want to be a person filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom so that when my church needs me, I'm ready and they can call on me. So you notice here, you got some complainers, and churches are not immune to complaining, just like they're not immune to conflict. But among the complainers, there are those who are suited to fix it. So there may be a problem you need to raise, but I don't just want to be a complainer. I want to be equipped. I want to be so filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom that when there's a problem at Highland, they'll call on me to help. That's the kind of person 
I want to be. So what am I praying? How am I helping? And lastly, what are we hoping? But let me say one more thing about how am I helping? We had this new family at Highland. They're, they're here at Highland now. They've only been here a couple months. And um, maybe you've experienced this. Highland's a 95-year-old church. A lot of people have been here a long time. They've got deep friendships. And you come and everybody's nice to you, but you, you've kind of had a hard time like breaking in. Maybe some of you have had that experience. It's something we're constantly praying about. We're constantly working on as a church, challenging our Sunday schools to really welcome people. But it can be hard. I get it. You come here. You don't know anybody. Everybody seems like they've got great friends and you kind of feel a little bit on the fringe. Okay. So he said at lunch, I went to lunch with him the other day. He's a new guy. He's like, man, we're loving it. Everybody is so nice to us, but we just feel like we haven't met our people yet and uh, haven't been to anybody's home yet. Just kind of struggling to feel like we belong. And then what he said next just amazed me. He said, okay, so... If there's anybody else at Highland who doesn't feel like they belong, you got any more new people who come the next few weeks, you send them to me and my wife, and we're going to have them over for dinner this week. Anybody else who doesn't feel like they haven't, they haven't found their people yet, you just let me know. You text me their contact information. I'll call them today. Right? I love that, right? Like he's raising a complaint that's legitimate, and he recognizes, hey, like God's actually equipped me to handle this. And I could be one of those people who makes people feel like they belong. So what am I, I don't have to wait on somebody else to do this. Like it could be me. Right. Okay. So how am I helping? I want to be a person filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom that can help my church be strong and united. But lastly, what are we hoping? Let me look, look, look with this, look with this with me. What are we hoping together? Verse seven. So remember, there hasn't been a great speech as much as I love Denzel and wish I could do a speech like that. There hasn't been a great speech leading up to this. Um, there hasn't been some powerful uh, miracle leading up to this, verse 7. All that's happened is a church had conflict. They led well through the conflict. It pleased everybody. And then verse 7, look at this. So the word of God spread. Look, there's a connection between our life together and our mission out there. Look at that. They lead well through the conflict, and we read, and so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. That last line there, phrase, is pretty significant. It's the only, it's the only place that we have that in Acts that I'm aware of, where there's a reference to priests converting. A large number of them. Now, think with me about this. If you were to convert to another faith, and I hope you don't, uh, if you were to do that, you could probably still have your same job. Probably you'd still have a relationship with your family, although the relationship might be taxed. You could probably live in your same house. Like much of your life would not change. But in this example, even priests, so guys whose whole life, their source of well-being, their job, their income, their identity, the place they live, all of that is tethered to being a priest, and guys were leaving that to join the church. Um, I mean, this, this would be like, like me having a dramatic conversion experience and converting. It'd be hard for me to still be your preacher. Right? And then how would I provide for my family? Where would we live? 
Who would our people be? You see the ripple effects that this would have? Okay, pay attention. There wasn't a great speech before this. There wasn't a miracle. All that those priests saw were people who were very different brought together. Conflicts when they came together, sure. But the Lord was so powerfully with the leaders of the early church that they were able to stay united, meet their problems, and continue witnessing to the world so the mission wasn't compromised. Think about that. Think about that. There was a, a book years ago who, uh, that came out in the 1970s. It was a book about church growth, how to grow a church. And the principle was, if you want to grow a church, what you should do is you should focus on a single narrow group of people who are very similar. So you might, you might target all of your outreach ministries at 35-year-old dads, okay? So you do like barbecue and watching the games and like those are all the events that you do. You just target one single group of people and you believe that if you can get a bunch of the same kind of people together, there's a lot of power in that and everybody will be, want to be part of it. That was the principle in the 1970s. It's called the homogeneous unit principle. You want a bunch of people who are the same. What's remarkable about the early church is they were not practicing the homogeneous unit principle and they were growing like crazy. It was this group where people were radically different, brought together, sometimes not getting along, and God still used them to spread his word in ways we haven't seen since. Just remarkable thousands of people converting daily. Look at that. There's a great and compelling power to the witness of the Lord when a diverse group of people can be united for his purposes. So what am I praying? I'm praying that our leaders will lead well and be tethered to the Lord. How am I helping? I want to be a person filled with the spirit and wisdom so I can build up my church. But what are we hoping? We're hoping that God will keep us together so that our message to the world will be strong and powerful. Strong enough that even, even those who are fully invested in something else would sacrifice it to be part of this. Wouldn't that be something? Let me pray over us. God, I thank you for your body gathered here today. I'm thankful for the way that you move among us. You convict our hearts, even in our complaints. And you overcome them, binding us together for the sake of your message to the world. May we be a strong testimony, united in our differences. May we be a strong testimony to the singular lordship of your son, Jesus, who binds us together. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.